Our reading this morning is from the book of Jude, verses 5 through 16. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all they, unlike reasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of game, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Um, kids, um, pre-K through second grade, you're now dismissed for Grace Kids. Thank you. So first off, I want to say thank you to Robert, who's teaching Equipping Hour right now, for taking the first four verses of Jude last week. I thought he did an excellent job of walking us through the first four, four verses. And now I get to all the weird stuff. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that Jude is the most ignored letter in the New Testament. And, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that these passages that we're covering today are the most ignored passages of Jude. So that would logically make it safe to say that these passages are the most ignored passages in the New Testament. And so I, most weeks, I'll kind of look around at different pastors and see how they've addressed the, the text that I'm teaching. And this week, as I looked around, it was hard to find any pastor that I respect that has interacted with these verses, which began to make me very nervous. And I think the main reason that Jude is so hard to understand is because he's throwing so much at you at one time. It can seem like he's all over the place. And on top of that, he's quoting biblical material that a lot of people are, are not familiar with. And he's quoting extra biblical material that the original audience knew really well, but hardly any of us have even heard of before. But 
I think when you see what he's doing, this, this text, this part of the text becomes very clear, very fast. Because what Jude is doing, he has concern for false teaching that is coming into the churches at that point. And specifically, I mean, you can see what they are as you, as you kind of go through it. You can at least dis- discern a lot of it. One part of it is that people are beginning to uh, cultivate an a la carte version of the faith where they, they use the grace that Christianity offers to justify living however they want. And, and specifically, the, the ethic that is reigning in the day that is contrary to what Jude wants them to engage is sexual immorality. And so on top of that, you can see in the text, we don't know all the details of these false teachers, but we can see that the authority of God is being questioned, and we can see that the person and work of Jesus Christ himself is beginning to be questioned. And so for me, I look at this once it kind of becomes clear, and I think Jude could be one of the most culturally appropriate books that we can have in our day because we live in an age where people are curating their faith like they do a Facebook page. They create an a la carte version of Christianity, and, it, and they do so to justify living out desires that, that we should not live out. So in many ways, I think this passage is perfect for us in this moment and this time. It won't be easy to hear, because much of our culture, we, we feel like we are progressing onto something new and better. We, we feel like we are enlightened in some way to begin to embrace a faith that again justifies what, these things that we, at our core, know we should not be doing. But when the religion that we curate ends up looking more like a bathhouse, a Roman bathhouse, we can't say that it's... I think we can say a lot of things about it, but we can't say that it's new or better. And so Jude is coming in, and he, what he's doing in this passage is he wants all of these people to know that what they're doing is not new in any way, that these false teachers it's, are among them in their church, and he also wants them to know that God is going to execute judgment on these false teachers and the people who follow them. So that's the progression of these passages, and I want to walk through it, and I hope it becomes very clear and easy to see what it is that Jude's doing. All right, so verses five through seven, Jude is saying really loudly, none of this is new, which is funny because I'm, I'm arguing, I mean, I look back at Roman times and I can argue, look, none of what we're doing is new. None of what our culture is engaging in is new. Jude in Roman times is looking back even farther and saying, none of this stuff is new. And he gives three different groups of beings. He talks about three different groups of beings to prove this. And the first group is this unbelieving Israel. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So God, you may remember in Exodus, he saved his people, all of his people out of, out of Egypt. But as they were wandering through the wilderness, some of Egypt began to grumble and murmur and want to oppose Moses because they didn't believe that God was going to do what God said he would do. And so this is, you know, they're, they're walking as one people, one group, and they probably looked and talked alike. They, they had the same parts of the Torah as it existed in that time memorized. They offered sacrifices. All these people, these unbelievers, had at one point offered sacrifices and thanks to the Lord, and now they are denying the Lord that they claimed. They had communicated saving faith and they deny God and God as Jude says is a God of both grace and judgment 
But if his grace does not lead to real changes in our lives, then we have to grapple with the reality that maybe it's judgment that's waiting us, not grace. We can't regress back into something that that God has called us out of. These Israelites had been saved and they want to regress back into all types of slavery, both physical and spiritual. And Jude is saying you can't do that. You can't regress back into a life that God has called you out of. And these false teachers, they they come in in every form and tell you this is something that's new, this is something that's exciting, this is maybe a new revelation from God, something you haven't thought of before. But in reality, they are almost always old messages and lies. So then you have the second group, the, re- the rebellious angels, verse six. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you remember Lucifer, he was the greatest of angels. He rebelled against God along with one-third of the heavenly host, and they were punished. They were sent down here, and they were given a punishment according to their offense and their privilege. And so I think Jude is saying, guys, not only is this not new to humanity, this isn't new in the angelic world. This is an age-old story of defying God, and if this can happen to angels, if this kind of punishment on our rebellion can happen to angels, why would you think it couldn't happen to us? And so lastly, you have the cities of the plain in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, So you can see this progression here. You see it go from dethroning God in our hearts to a change in our ethic and the way that we live our lives, fulfilling in some type of destruction. This happened with the Israelites, it happened with the angels, and now it's happening with all the cities surrounding and including Sodom and Gomorrah. So the result of challenging God's authority in their life, in the angels' life, and ours is an ethic that is outside of what God wants for us, for our well-being and our thriving and an impending destruction. So these false teachers, they come in, they act like this message is new and different in some way. And what Jude is saying, you once knew all this. And why, this isn't new to you. What you need, this is how he starts out the passage, you need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. And I think how often I forget that even I need to be reminded of some of the most basic parts of our faith. We all need reminders. And in God's providence, I had this really unique opportunity last week at a conference to interview one of my former professors, D.A. Carson. He was about to give a talk uh, at the conference from Hebrews, and it was he's 74 years old, and this talk was literally on something he has taught for over four decades in seminary. And so I asked him, I mean, did you learn anything new? As, as you're putting together this talk, do you see anything new? And in his like stoic Canadian accent, he said, no, nothing new. But I, don't need, I don't need anything new. I need reminders. And so if that's true of D.A. Carson, I can tell you it's true of all of us. We need to be reminded that what we have seen happen for thousands of years, when people and even angels dethrone God in their heart, will be true of us as well. And one of the sad things about false teaching in the church is is how long we ignore it and how long we let it go until it's truly wreaking havoc among us. 
And so it, makes, it kind of makes you think about the, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s, we would get all these horrible reports about how bad the Nazi regime was, but we really did not realize it. We didn't fully see it until the world was at war and these horrible death camps are being revealed. That's kind of how false teaching works in the church because it, it gets going and you just you kind of overlook it or don't see it or don't want to believe it until it's truly wreaking havoc in the church. And Jude sees this and he wants us to take this seriously. And so he doesn't stop at just showing us that this has happened before. In verse 8, he transitions and he shows that church, and, and I hope us as well, that it's happening among you at this time. So this is verses 8 through 13. So Jude has been building this argument, making it super clear that false teachers are in your church, and he's identified these three groups. So think about the sin, the primary sin of each of these groups. You have unbelieving Israel, the primary sin is unbelief. You have rebelling angels, the primary sin is pride. And then you have Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, and the primary sin is sexual immorality. Well, think about that as you look at this text. Because it sounds like the way Jude is saying that, that these people would just dream dreams and visions and bring these new... Um, these new ideas and these visions to the congregation as if they are speaking on behalf of God. And these teachings are A, an affront to the authority of God, B, an affront to the uniqueness of Jesus, and three, an affront to, the, to a kingdom ethic. Well, that is unbelief, pride, and sexual morality. I mean, that, that's, that's the same thing that Jude's highlighting these groups because he's trying to say, this is what's happening in your church. And then he contrasts what he's been talking about with these three groups with a fictional religious story about the archangel Michael. And so the way the story goes is that the archangel Michael and Satan were battling for the body of Moses. And the way that the archangel defends himself against Satan is simply by saying, the Lord rebuke you. So he's not claiming his own authority. That makes him humble. He's, he's full of faith that God can do it. And he's not trying to steal any authority. He says it's up to the Lord to do what the Lord does. So Jude is using that, even though it's fictional, as an example of what, what faithful, true teaching looks like. I guess it would be similar to me using an illustration out of a movie or something today. Um... So then, in verse 10, Jude says, but these people, so we've gone from the, from the archangel, well, let me say, we've gone through the three groups, to the archangel My Michael, and then the teachers among the people in the churches that Jude is talking to, he says, these false teachers, they're like Cain, who brought a deceitful offering to the Lord, the epitome of evil, the first person in scripture to both defy God and harm another human being. He says, they're like Balaam, the Midianite prophet who betrayed Israel by leading them into immorality and idolatry, someone who really only ever cared for his own self-profit. You see the antithesis of Abraham, the prototype false teacher. And then Jude says they're like Korah. You remember Korah in Numbers uh, 16. He was the one who led this rebellion along with 250 other men against Moses, God's ordained authority for his people and that did not end well. And Jude, again, this is why it feels like there's so much. He doesn't stop there. He then tells them why these false teachers are so bad. This is when he piles on these metaphors. The first one he uses is they're like hidden reefs. 
And if you know much about boats, when you go out in the ocean, where the reefs are can be the calmest of waters. So it has this allure, it draws you in, but there it is that your, your, your ship sinks. And then he says they're like waterless clouds. They can't do the main thing they have been called to do. They, they look like they promise nourishment, but they leave you in a spiritual desert. And then he says they're like trees with no fruit. They speak of a spirit, but they have no fruit of the spirit. And he said they're like crashing waves. I remember, in, those of you who were here in 2004, we had, the way I remember it, we had three hurricanes come in in like four weeks. And I can't remember what hurricane this was, but we went over to the beach. And we just want to see, what does the beach look like the morning after a direct hit? And the beach was a mess. You know, it had all this natural junk up there, all this man-made junk on the beach, because these waves came crashing in and they revealed the filth that was underneath the water. So in the same way, these false teachers, they come in and they crash on the church and they leave their filth all over everything. And then lastly, you have these wandering stars, which is highly debated on how you interpret it. Honestly, however you interpret it, it, it lends to the, same, to the same conclusion. But I do agree with Robert's conclusion. Uh, he mentioned this last week. When you go out and you sail back in that day, you would use stars to navigate because stars don't move. But an inexperienced sailor might instead set his sights on a planet which does move and will lead him out into the ocean, into the dark, never to return. So Jude says a lot, all right? That, that's what he's doing. He's being clear. This is not new. It's happened. It's happening among you. This is what it looks like. This is why it's bad. So now we get to the point of asking ourselves, all right, if that's true, we're 2,000 years later on the other side of the earth. What false teaching do we need to look out for? What false teaching is threatening us? And I can tell you there's a whole lot. There's a lot. And we, we, have, we have enemies on every front attacking what it is that we teach and believe here. And you, of course, you have the, the, the let me say that most frequently, probably, um, enemies that the church has, has been aware of, things like cults that de- deny the divinity of Jesus. You have the prosperity gospel. You have the Joel Osteens of the world. But my sense in, in our context isn't that those have a lot of lure on our church. So when I think about the threats around us, I want to look at the threat to our left, the threat to our right, and then one sneaking up behind us. So the threat to our left would be theological liberalism. Theological liberalism, it wants to strip the Bible of its authority. Theological liberalism wants to strip the miracles away from Jesus. Theological liberalism wants to cultivate, cultivate a grace that will allow them to justify living however they want. And you will see at its at extreme, they want to completely flatten gender and dissolve marriage in some way, redefine marriage at least. And so this, this threat is here and it's real. I was actually reading last week, I thought it was interesting, the term gospel-centered, is, this is a, a word that gained a ton of, it became a buzzword over the past 20 years. It was like publishers weren't publishing a book unless it had gospel-centered in the title. And the gospel-centered became kind of a code word for, for the reformed world. But you know, the origin of the term gospel-centered back in, back in the 40s, mid-20th mid century, they were theological liberals who didn't want to be bound to, to the whole teaching of the Bible. So they said, we're not biblical Christians. We're not even going to say we're Jesus Christians. We're going to be gospel-centered 
Christians. <laughs> you know, we just want the grace. And so what we're experiencing to our left, it isn't new. It's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so it's just, it just comes in a slightly new package every time. That's the enemy to the left. The enemy to the right is what is being called Christian nationalism. Now, this is not new at all. The term is new, so the dangerous place here is that we would, uh, that we would define it differently. So here's the way that I want to define Christian nationalism. It is when we put the purity and purpose of our country on par with the purity and the purpose of the church. Right? That's when we get into real danger. And so we begin to, when we fall into this, we begin to believe that, that the United States really is some sort of second Israel, okay? We believe that God has a unique relationship with us, a unique covenant with us. And, and you will hear people say things like, you cannot be a Christian and not vote Republican. That's, the, that's what a Christian does. And so I want you to hear me. I am a political conservative to the core. I, I really am. And I love the United States of America. I am so thankful to live in this country. I am so thankful to my grandfather and uncles and some of you who have fought to defend the freedom that we enjoy in this country. I am deeply, deeply thankful, and I don't want that lost on anybody. But I think in all likelihood, this beautiful experiment of religious freedom and power in the West will be a historical blip on the radar. When I look at the end of times, in Daniel, in Revelation, in Matthew, I don't see an environment that feels like the 20th century West. That's just not what it looks like. And so the way, here's how I want to do it. I want to evaluate the church and our country based, the, the purity and purpose of our church and country based on the purity and purpose of their founding documents. So the church's founding document is what? Scripture. Breathed out by God, inerrant, good for everything that we need it to be good for, and it will lead us home for an eternity with Jesus. The foundation doc, foundational document of the United States is what? The Constitution. The Constitution, in its beauty and brilliance and truth, okay? I'm a big fan of the Constitution. It is beautiful, it is, it is brilliant, and it is true. But it was the watershed document that brought secularism into the West. I mean, if you look at the, the, the constitutions of the different co colonies, they are much more Christian than the U.S. Constitution. I'm going to read you a snippet of the Constitution of the Colony of Connecticut. That's a mouthful. Our inhabitants there, that is the people in Connecticut may be so religiously, peaceably, and civilly governed as their good life and orderly conversation may win and invite the natives of the country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and he, savior of mankind, and the Christian faith. So the Constitution itself, as much as I'm thankful for it, is an enlightened document. It, it, we, we can't put it on par with scripture, so we can't put our country on par with the church. And I know I'm over-communicating here, but I don't say this to take a shot at our country or anything like that. I, I say this so we don't elevate the Constitution with Scripture, so we don't elevate the purity of the country with the purity of the church, because God is committed to the purity and the deliverance of the church in a way that he's just not committed to the purity and 
the purity and deliverance of this country. And I am thankful for every day I get to live in this country. I pray that my kids and grandkids get to live in this country. But we can never conflate the two things. That's what's going on over here. And then the last threat. This is the threat sneaking up behind us. This is the threat that I think most of our friends, children, and grandchildren will have to interact with. This is the a la carte Christianity that creates whatever ethic it wants. But, and there's a lot of... And, and kind of you find the climax of the depart in ethics in the world of sexuality. So there's a lot of overlap between this group to the left and them, but this group is led in a different way. You might see real conservative people in this group. And so I'll illustrate it like this. There is a sweet young girl that Angela discipled in Mississippi and she has recently left her husband and family to, for a relationship with another woman. And, and this sweet girl has over time developed a different form of Christianity that lends itself to live the way that she wants to live, not understanding that it's destructive. Destructive to her, destructive to those who love her. And I look at her and it makes me sad. And I look at those people who have walked with her and it makes me mad. Because it's not walking towards a place where she will thrive. God has designed an ethic that causes us to thrive in this life. But when we ignore his authority and the uniqueness of Jesus, then we're going to also ignore the way of life where we get the greatest blessing of communion with him. And as I said, this is the largest group in our city. I think this is the main religion of Orlando. And I think that this is what our kids are going to have to deal with, our grandkids. And this, this group, they're dangerous because they don't denigrate Jesus the way you might see here. And they don't, they don't, no, I don't even want to go over here, but they don't denigrate Jesus. They conform him into a type of savior that's going to let us do whatever it is that we want to do and justify whatever sexual ethic is going to reign in the day. And they're going to be, be okay with that based on this idea of the grace of God that just is nowhere to be found in scripture. So it's subtle, but it's clear, and this is what Jude is warning us about. So can you see that Jude takes this seriously? The, the threat of teachers, false teachers in our midst, he takes this incredibly seriously, and then he gives us another way to look at them. He says you, can't, it's, you can see that their teaching is off, but there's another way to find them. Their character is going to be off too. Verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. We've talked about that. They are loudmouthed boast, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. He's saying you can see their hearts by their deeds. And it's easy to not know what we're looking for. I mean, that's, that's why this stuff kind of creeps up so often in the church and so quickly and, until it seems like it's too late. is because we don't know the warning signs. Because sometimes the warning signs actually aren't the teaching but the character. You know, it looks like they're, they're teaching Jesus. They've got a following of their teaching. So when we see a little pride, when we see a little favoritism, it's easy to just overlook those things. But God, there's a lot of providence in, in last week. But at the Gospel Coalition, I got to see a great example of what it looks like to be a good, faithful Bible teacher and resist all the favoritism that might that might come your way. So there's, there, you go to these conferences and there, there are some people who will not give you the time of day unless they think you have something to offer them. But then I saw this one pastor, a really well-known guy, he gave his talk and he came back to the green room and in the green room is the, are the most well-known evangelicals in the world and who does this pastor spend the rest of his time at that conference with? 
the 22-year-old 20, 20, volunteer from Sri Lanka. And I just got to see that that's the character that we want. That character speaks louder than all the words that man said on stage. So no teacher's sinless. I don't want to set the bar too high here. I would fail that bar. But if there are glaring moral issues in the teachers, then that has to be a red flag. And I can tell you, there are teachers who teach doctrine the same way I would teach doctrine, but I know their character, and I will never listen to a single sermon they give. And we need to have that same kind of filter in the local church. All right, so let's go back, because the greatest dangers come from inside the church. Why is it that these threats are so bad? Why is it that this a la carte Christianity is so bad? Because you can say it lets us do what we want to do. It's more uniting than Christianity. It brings us together. Why is it so bad? That's the last thing that Jude addresses in verses 14 and 15. It's bad because God will execute his judgment on these false teachers and those who follow. I'm going to read 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude is quoting the book of Enoch here. The book of Enoch is a pseudepigraphal book. That means that someone wrote it in someone else's name. So it's written in the name of Enoch, but it wasn't Enoch who wrote this book. It's written, it's also not a part of the Apocrypha, which is commonly thought that Jude is, you know, kind of supporting the Apocrypha. It's not a part of that, that body of works. This is just its own unique thing that was written, I think, a couple centuries before the apostles were here. It was very well known in Jude's day. And what I think is happening is the false teachers are using that book to promote their false teaching. And so what Jude is doing is using the same thing they're using to show that they're hypocritical in their understanding of what they're teaching. So it'd be like if, if there was a false teacher that came and was leading people astray with the letters of Ben Franklin, okay? If I'm able to use those same letters to show that they're being hypocritical in the way that they're using Ben Franklin, that would be a good thing to do. I think that's what Jude is doing here. So the book of Enoch, it supports the claim that Jesus is coming back one day. He's coming back with his army. He is going to put false teachers and those who follow him in their place. And on that day, he will resurrect his people. He will resurrect this world. And there is an, an eternity of bliss awaiting all those who follow Jesus. And on that day, it will be the best day that any of his followers will ever experience in the course of humanity, but on that day for these false teachers and for the people who follow them, it will be so bad that John says they will want the mountains to fall on them, to shield them from the glory of Jesus Christ. So when we hear this, I don't want us to feel threatened. I want us to feel loved. That's how much God loves his people. You know, I have four children, and if anybody came in to their life and wanted them to, and was trying to convince them to walk down a self-destructive path, a path outside of God's will and glory and grace and fruit, I would do anything to get my kids back. There's, there's, I don't think there's much I would not do within my legal and moral authority to bring them home. And whoever it is that's leading them astray, 
I would want judgment executed on that person. Now, I don't get to execute judgment because I myself am a straying, sinful person. But God does have judgment to execute, and it will be executed because he hates everything that draws his children away from the safety and love that is him. This morning I was reading a quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, you know, we think a lot about how happy we're going to be when we're in heaven with God. But we never think about how happy God is going to be when we're in heaven with him. Because on that day, his children will be secured, will be safe for eternity with no more sin in the presence of the Father. That's what we should feel Jude saying. It's not a threatening thing. He loves his children and he will stop at nothing to bring us home. And he will execute judgment on everyone who threatens those that he loves without end. And I think it's interesting. If you watch all of the calls for justice in our society, so you have people on TV and social media all calling for various kinds of judgment. And and it's funny because I sympathize with a lot of it, most of it maybe, because I want rest for the weary and downtrodden. I, I want justice for the oppressed. But I will be able to endure life if that does not happen. Because I know all will be made just at the end of time. But some of the people that we see in the media and social media, they will never be satisfied. They will never be satisfied because they don't know three things. They don't know the injustice that they have committed against the God of the universe. They don't know the injustice that Jesus Christ willingly took on himself to spare us the justice that we deserve. And they don't realize that justice will be done for all at the end of time. And so they remain unsatisfied. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't blaspheme God by claiming ultimate authority in and of himself. He just endured what Satan was throwing at him. And in so doing, he modeled what it is that we can never do, and he modeled what we can now do with the help of the Holy Spirit. And you see these false teachers who are coming in and they're wanting to redefine the whole idea of righteousness because there's no, they know there's nothing they can do to live up to the standard of holy and perfect righteousness. And Jesus instead would say, you can't do it, so take his righteousness into and make it our own and hand Jesus our sin. And so the false t- teachers, they come in and One of the things they want us to do is give in to our sinful desires and justify it as if it is right. But then Christ calls us to give those sinful desires to him and take his righteousness freely. I mean, the gospel is not, there's no such thing as sin. The gospel is not, you can live a moral life and be accepted by God. The gospel is, Jesus has attained perfection that we never will be able to attain and he's handing it to us freely. So the greatest challenges, they come not from outside the church. They're challenges outside the church, but the greatest challenges don't come from a corrupt government. They don't come from social persecution. The greatest challenges come from within. They come from false teachers coming to speak in Jesus' name who know nothing about what Jesus is really wanting for us, and we as a church have to stay on guard. But before, in this day and age, I don't feel like I can just leave us with that. Because the challenge today, as we see an unthinkable fracturing of evangelicalism, 
because of the polarization of our country. The challenge is to discern where is an actual threat and where is it just brothers and sisters disagreeing? Because there, there are things that we can just disagree on. We can disagree on how to school children. We can disagree on race and politics. We can disagree on the most effective way to be pro-life. But there is a day where the teaching crosses, where teaching crosses a line and the authority of God is usurped, the authority of the church is disregarded, the uniqueness of Jesus is maligned, and a kingdom ethic is thrown to the wind. So in using the words of Jude, there is a point where peace is replaced with grumbling, where purity is replaced with malcontents, where humility is replaced by pride, meekness is replaced by loudmouth boasting, and outdoing one another in honor is replaced by favoritism. Those are the things we need to be on the lookout for in this church. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that you give us these examples. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight to be able to see things that are just maybe in the beginning smell off in our midst. But we pray that you would give us a, a real discerning ability to, to see where lines are, to see where we can mutually and cordially disagree and where we need to really double down and say, no, this does not belong in the church. God, these are confusing and trying times to be able to do this and we pray for lots and lots of wisdom and grace and love. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.